If you would, open your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. If you're a first-time guest with us here today, certainly thankful that you're here in God's providence. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you. That is our gift to you. We've received nothing greater than God's Word into our own lives, and so we want you to have a copy. Also, remember, if you're a first-time guest, to grab one of those gift bags on your way out. Um, Here we are in John chapter 4. We've been here for quite some time, and I hope that you are as encouraged as I have been in growing and in understanding. John has not In all of the weeks that we have spent in this letter, he's never left his purpose of writing for our joy in the face of a world that is in the power of the evil one, as chapter 5, verse 19 tells us. This letter is one of the most breathtaking, I think, artful expressions of Scripture in all of the Bible. And yet it's so often misunderstood and misquoted and verses are ripped out of their context and used for theologies that are found nowhere in the Bible. We've spoken about this letter as having mountain peaks, uh, points that are just these high highs uh, in our theological understanding, but yet they have a way of bringing us low and allowing us to live our lives in the earth. We've also talked about this letter in its poetic expression, its poetic terms. John doesn't write like Paul the Apostle writes. John writes in more of a poetic, uh, circular fashion than he does a linear fashion. I think one of the other ways that we can think of this letter is in terms of it being artful. Um, Good art is always fascinating. Good art is composed of, in my subjective, very lay understanding of art, um, in two components. One, it's complexity, and at the same time, it's simplicity. Um, Good art will always kind of draw you in with how complex it is, and yet in the in what you're looking at, you will find simplicity in the expression. And so we find that here in this letter. For those of you that know me well, you know that my favorite artist is the Dutch Reformed artist Rembrandt. Um, for many reasons, the, 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 the greatest of which is the fact that when you look at the entirety of the scope of Rembrandt's work, now you didn't come to hear a sermon on Rembrandt's work. I'll get past this briefly. Um, but as an illustration to what we're going to talk about today, one of the things that's fascinating about his work is if you look at the mythological um, works that he painted, they seem to have that feeling of being nothing more than a dream, something other than reality. But when it comes to Rembrandt's renderings of things that are found in the Bible, he writes, the, he, excuse me, he paints them in a way where you're drawn in and you realize that for Rembrandt, the pages of this Bible were not a mythological treatise. They were actually real stories. This was real life. One of the ways that many uh, people look at his work and and make an argument in that direction is, do you see down in the left-hand corner of the screen that there's a picture of a dog there? Most of uh, Rembrandt's paintings of biblical fashion will include dogs and Not to be disgusting, but there's even some of them where the dog is defecating in the picture. And part of that is to draw you into this is real life. 
Dogs really do this. This was probably really going on in the background of the narrative of the Bible because since creation has begun, well, animals... There. Um, another reason that I love this brother is when he died and all of the fame and the acclaim in his life... This is the 100 Gilder print. It's one of the best etchings. I'm not going to... Anyway. Um, but when he died... In all the wealth that he had amassed and lost and all of the notoriety that he had gained, you know, they found one book in his, in his library. And that one book was a copy of the Dutch Bible. I think that's fantastic that one of the most artful people that God gave talent to had at the core of his learning the Word of God. Now, he had many vices, but so we all do. Um... So today, today, we're going to look and lean into uh, a, a, an impressive detail, an aspect. And, and you see the different way that light impacts in this particular painting around Christ's face. And, and I think as we look at the Bible, there are verses that seemingly glow off of the pages. And this, this one verse that we're going to be dealing with, verse 14, um, is much the same. And we have to take... Be careful to take every verse in its proper context. You never look at a drawing, a painting, a piece of art in just one aspect. You look at the entire composition. And so it is with this particular verse, this particular statement, that we have to treat it systematically. We have to look at it in context of the entirety of the Bible. Verse 14 must be taken together with verse 15, and, and verse 15 with verse 14, and vo verses 14 and 15 have to be taken in the context of the entire letter. If you pull the verses out of their context, they lose their meaning. And beloved, let me make you one promise of this verse 14 this morning. It's not a random statement. The Apostle Paul, contrary, Apostle John, excuse me, contrary to the way that some people preach the Word of God, did not have Tourette syndrome. He did not just bark out one one verse, disconnected from the entire argument that he's making. And we, we understand that there is a holistic argument that's being made here in chapter 4. So with that in mind, if you would stand to your feet as we do honor the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. 1 John chapter 4, and we'll begin in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. Verse 14, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. This is the Word of God 
to you and I this morning. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning humbled under the weight of your word that you would send your only begotten Son into the world to redeem sinners. Father, that you would set your love upon us before the foundation of the age, uh, before the foundation of the world, and Father, that you would pursue us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Would you write these truths on our hearts eternally? In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It's interesting how the Christian church has dealt with the issue of assurance and how it's been handled differently throughout the centuries. The Puritans were an introspective people. If you read the Puritans, you will find that these were individuals who were constantly looking inward. And they, when they were looking inward, it's not the kind of Joel Osteen looking inward that we have today, looking inward and just going, wow, we're great. It's not the kind of inward looking that they had in their introspection. Their inward looking uh, revealed to them a great deficit of belief and life. Uh, they often uh, would lament the reality of their sin. All things that I think are right in light of the Word of God and what it teaches. But they would also say that when we're looking for assurance, we need to look inward. And part of their argument in particular uh, is that... It, Getting assurance is kind of like wearing a necklace that has a bunch of different beads. And if we can look inward and find any measure of growth in, in, in the fruit of the Spirit or in graces that the Word talks about in love and charity and any of those things, if we can find one, just find one if your heart is fainting, and as you grab a hold of that and you thank God that He's growing you in that one area, be assured that all of the other graces on the, on, on the necklace are tied to that one. And because you can see the one, you can rest knowing that God will bring the others to completion in due course. I think that's incredibly encouraging. I mean, if you've got your act together and you don't need that illustration, that's great for you. But for a sinner like me, I need to know that when I see the smallest amount of God's moving in my life, I can rest knowing that He is the one that has authored that and will bring it to completion. And it's a great comfort. Others have um, contested this way or maybe thought of it a little bit differently and, and they have said, no, 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 no. The way that we get assurance is not to look inward, but it's to look into the Word of God and we've talked about this before. We've talked about the notitia, the, 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 the knowledge, the, the seed of understanding doctrinally who Christ is and then the uh, ascensus, that is that our heart gives agreement, the yes and amen to the truth that we understand and finally the fiducia, the, the trust in that knowledge and ultimately if we know the Word of God and we know what it reveals about the Son of God and our heart says yes and amen to those things then ultimately we place our trust in the Word of God and by so doing we have assurance that God is completing His work of redemption in spite of us. Now I also think that's encouraging. That my, uh, the assurance of my salvation does not rest finally and ultimately, on who I am. It rests on who Christ is and what He is bringing to completion. Now, I know that there's going to immediately become arguments about how works fit into that particular paradigm. Well, those are the works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We will be rewarded and we will all, at the end of days, glorify Him because ultimately it's His work in us. Right? Right? 
Now it's interesting, just the, the, the scope of the extent of how we've thought about um, assurance throughout church, the church history. Well, John really is the fountainhead and is dealing with that particular theme of assurance of salvation. That is what chapter 4 and these verses that we've been reading are really dealing with. He, he is talking about us loving the brethren, and he says that if we don't love the brothers, that we shouldn't have assurance. If, if we don't find in our hearts affection for the church of God, then it is because we don't know the living God. Then in, it, it, that, in turn, leads him to talk about the theme of, of knowing God. And according to John, it's the most important thing in any of our lives that we would know Christ and that Christ would know us and that we would remain and abide in God. Verses 14 and 15 speak to the next kind of test, the love of God, uh, love of the church, love of the brethren, a knowledge of God, and then verses 14 and 15 speak to the next test of really being in Christ. Look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. This is the, the third way. One, loving the church. Two, possessing the Holy Spirit, knowing God through the indwelling work of the Spirit, and here, confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. And we must not forget as we come to this verse what kind of confession this is. And I hope in a moment to get to the word confess because it's really important. We know that in the final day Jesus has told us that there will many, be many people that He cast into outer darkness who say who have said, Lord, Lord. They've given verbal assent to His position in the universe and they've even carried out ministries and they've done things, but they aren't from the heart confessing that Christ is Lord. They should have no assurance. So the question that we need to ask today is not looking around the room and does this person or that person or this group or that group know and confess the living God. I think the real question is do I know Christ as Lord? Do I know Him to be the King and the ruler of my life. And if I do, then I know that God is dwelling in me and I in God. I'm assured because God has sent His Son into the world that if I believe and trust upon Him, that He will bring about my redemption. Mark it down. God keeps His promises. We must consider this question in light of the text. And I want to make several propositions to you about what this these verses really teach us about our particular faith and our confession of who Christ is, of confessing that Christ is Lord. One, I would say that the correct belief is proof of the possession of the Holy Spirit. John is not saying, John doesn't come and say, guys, I've been thinking about this. And you know, if you love the church... And if you possess the Spirit of God, and if you confess that Christ is the Son of God and that He is Lord, then maybe you should have some assurance. He doesn't come making a, a mere suggestion. He's emphatic about what He's saying. John intends to drive dividing lines at the head of the church. 
to make very clear distinctions about who is in Christ and who is not in Christ. He wants us to understand that the love of the church, the indwelling of the Spirit, and the confession of the Son of God are paramount to our being rightfully inside the kingdom of God. His argument, in a sense, here, in verse 14 and 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. His argument is that if we confess Jesus is the Son of God, we do so only for one reason. There is only one reason why Sarah, why Cam, why any of us today in this room will confess that Jesus is the Son of God. One reason and one reason alone, John said, and says, and that reason is because those individuals belong to God and are indwelled by the Spirit of God. The only reason that we can come this morning and sing praises to God and cry out, show us Christ in the text, is because the Spirit has put upon our hearts that desire. It's not because we're intellectually bright. It's not because we have strength in our own being. It is because of the illuminating work of Almighty God in opening our eyes to our hardened sin against Him and our need for redemption. That is why we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And and this isn't just John kind of standing out on his own making this argument. This is what all of the Bible teaches us. You go to Psalm 119, read all 176, 878 verses of Psalm 119, and you will find time and time again that this man who loved the Word of God is constantly asking God, show me what it means. Because I can't come to the Word and rightfully understand it on my own. It is only by the working of your Spirit and by the illuminating power of your uh, life in me that I can ever see the fullness of what is going on here. John, again, is absolute. John is proceeding in an order to correct false teaching. He's proceeding in an order to show us this doctrine of the Holy Spirit and that it is meaningful. And, and, and part of what he's doing, again, he's speaking against the Gnostics here. And the Gnostics saying that, you know, we have special knowledge, we have special revelation, we have a, a, a higher intellect. And John, the apostle, just stands on the side and says, well, boys, do you know Christ? Because that is who God is revealing throughout the entirety of the Old Testament and into the New. The Word of God is about Jesus being the only begotten Son of God. And if you don't have that right, you may have the most academic degrees and all of this higher knowledge. You're still damned to hell. That is what he is saying. He's emphatic about this reality. There are people who... uh, teach in our day and have for some time that we can be in a position of believing on Christ and yet not really be possessing the Holy Spirit. That that we can be believers in Jesus, but we get the Holy Spirit later. And beloved, I would tell you that that doesn't doesn't wash with the arguments that John is making here. It's incompatible with the text to say you can believe on Jesus and then later on you'll get the Holy Spirit. That's not what is being said here because before you can believe, you have to possess the Spirit of God. 
That has to be what he is saying here. John's whole purpose is for us to test our faith, for us to really concern ourselves with, am I confessing that Jesus is the Son of God? Is he who he really says that he is? God dwells in us by the Spirit. By his Spirit, John says. And so we don't get this true confession of Christ without his work. We can say that people who do confess that Jesus is the Son of God have the Holy Spirit in them because they cannot believe on Jesus. They can't confess that He is the Son of God without the possession of the Spirit of God. Paul says the same thing. If you're sitting there thinking, I don't know that I agree with that. Well, if you disagree with John the Apostle, then you're going to have to disagree with Paul the Apostle as well when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of glory. Not of, uh, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And then in verse 10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The whole argument is this. Princes of this world, the great men of reason, the great men of nobility and wisdom, they looked at Jesus when He walked on this earth. They looked at His life and they saw nothing other than an ordinary man, a carpenter, an individual Jew walking throughout his lifetime in the natural course of human existence. They regarded Him maybe as a moral teacher. They maybe were enamored with the fact that thousands were following Him in His day, but they saw nothing other than a man. That's all they saw. And why is that? Why is it that the most wise, the, the most prudent, the most powerful, the, 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 the most erudite in their thinking looked upon this man and could not see that He was the Son of God? Why is that? And why is it that today, that in light of centuries of human existence since Christ's time, some of the most powerful people on the planet have looked into the Word of God and they've seen nothing but a good moral example. They've seen nothing more than a political treatise. They've looked into the Word of God and they've seen nothing but fodder for their liberal garbage. And yet today... I gather with 150 of my brothers and sisters in Christ who look upon Christ and they behold Him not only as a man, but as the Son of glory. Why is that? Would one of you stand to your feet this morning and say, because I decided. Anyone? I'm glad that argument has left the church. The only reason that we can have a hope in heaven of seeing the glories of Christ in the pages of Scripture and not turning to the vomit and the folly of this earth is because the Spirit of God abides within us. Because God has given us the gift of seeing His only begotten Son. And beloved, one day we will see Him in His fullness. Amen. What a joy that is. 
The only reason that we have that hope is that the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, that's not the only place that, that Paul makes that argument in this letter to the Corinthian church. In chapter 12 of that same letter, he writes this, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. I think the argument that God would allow us to believe but withhold His Spirit is dead. Because there's only one way that we can confess that Christ is Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that is by the work of the Spirit. And yet we see all throughout church history, we see the gospel proclaimed. We, we see the reality of this wonderful and glorious gospel that man was created upright and that he possessed the inclination to do right and yet Satan tempted him in the garden and Adam fell into sin. He willfully chose to disobey God and all of humanity under his headship plunged into perdition and without hope in the world. And at that moment, from that moment of, of Adam's rebellion, the entire world lied in the, was lying in the power of the evil one. I think we're all a little bit shocked about what's going on around the, the globe right now. Uh, wars tend to grab our attention, they make big headlines, and there really are people suffering around the world that we need to pray for, I believe, on both sides of this conflict. The problem didn't start when Putin decided to invade Russia. The problem started when Adam decided to disobey God. That's when the problem started in the entire world. From that moment on, it lied in the power of the evil one in his hands. And the only hope that we have is not that we would straighten up and fly right. It's not that we would be good Baptists and honor mama in the way that we do everything according to what she wants. The only hope in heaven that any of us have is that God would send his only son into the world to be a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. And not only that but that He, by the work of His Spirit, in every generation would regenerate the hearts of men and draw individuals back to Christ, His Son, that they would lay down their lives willingly to follow Him. The only hope in heaven that we have is the triune God. There's no way of us confessing that Jesus is Lord apart from that. So the gospel goes forward and we see all throughout history. Some believe and some reject. Some who are wise, who are educated, those who are known for a well-ordered life and being the sage advice givers of their day look at Jesus and they go, I don't see anything other than a dude. That's just a man. And then some of the most humble, uneducated, argumentative, Grumpy, low-class people look at this man Jesus and they see the glory shining through. Now does any of us want to say that that is because of something in the individual? It can't be. And they don't, I don't want to set that up in your mind that people who are bright and all of that don't come to Christ. They do. But they come the same way the rest of us do. Same way the lowly do. And that is through the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit has allowed them to believe. This teaching 
that you can believe first again and then go on to receive the Spirit is utterly unscriptural. And I think what those brothers are trying to say, and we do have the problem in the church of sometimes we need to help our brothers understand and articulate what they mean to say. And I think what they mean to say is, I've come to believe on Christ, I am in Christ, but I have other experiences, I have other um, other different um, joys in the Spirit. I grow in the Spirit. I have subjective experience of the Spirit really leading me in a particular direction, in a particular way, killing sin in a particular fashion in my life. And my encouragement is what we should do is just say that. The Spirit birthed me anew and I possess the fullness of the Spirit in my life but I can submit my life to the Spirit in a way that I grow in Him and I'm out of the way more and there's more filling of Him in my life. I'm yielding to Him. Those individuals again should just go on and say it that way instead of saying that somehow there are those who believe on Jesus and then there are those of us who are really godly that, that, that possess the Spirit. No, no. We all, if we are in Christ, possess the Spirit because there's no other way to see Christ as the Son of God. So a correct belief only comes the bidding of the Spirit of God. Secondly, correct belief means an acceptance of all of the apostolic testimony, and that includes the prophets, the Old Testament as well. And this is why it's so important for us to see verses 14 and 15 together. Read them again and hear what he is saying. And we have, been, have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. The, the we and we have seen of verse 14 ties directly back to chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 the we is the apostolic testimony of God's apostles verse 1 of chapter 1 that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes that is a John is speaking for the whole group of apostles which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And he says again here, we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent His Son into the world. So the correct belief that the correct confession has to flow out of the apostolic witness and testimony. And this is where we need to grab a hold of the word confess. Uh, we hear all the time that those who confess that Jesus is Lord in this verse belong to Him. But is that just kind of a mumbling? Is that following some rote prayer? Is that, is that just doing something mechanical on the outside? No, the word confess in verse 15 really means assenting to, expressing agreement, praising God for. It is the yes and amen of my heart. It, it's not merely saying with your mouth only. It is that inwardly you have this passion that burns. 
that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God, and that he is the Redeemer of the world, and that the Father is really the one who sent him. We are saying, I receive this as true. I believe it. I have read it. I have I've come to understand it. And my heart says, yes and amen. What assures us is that we um, praise God for the teaching and the doctrine that His apostles and prophets have laid forth for us. How can we know that? How, what enables us to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, on what ground do we stand firm? When someone says, do you, when, when, when someone, when the Apostle John says, do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, what is the foundation for you being able to say yes? There can only be one answer. There can only be one answer to being an individual who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And that is the reality that we have come to agree in the authority of the Word of God. That our heart rests on the apostolic witness. That, that we realize, you know what? I haven't seen Jesus with my own eyes. That I haven't, I haven't seen Him perform miracles in the sense that He did in the, the Gospels. I, I haven't walked with Him. I haven't traveled with Him. I haven't gone through life with Him in the same way that all of the apostles did. I, I haven't had that same one-to-one -one personal experience in the sense of seeing Him in the flesh. But they saw Him. They heard Him. And what we find in their writing is consistently and continually the proclamation of who the real Jesus is. It's why the whole uh, idea of higher criticism is totally foolish. This idea that, that we can, as humans, we can get that, you know, that big group of smart people I was talking about earlier that most of whom don't know Christ. That they get together in a room and they decide which of these statements did Jesus say and which ones didn't he say. How do you know? And they'll give elaborate ways of expressing all of this, but the reality is that there's, there just seemingly comes this this confrontation that we have to have, which is, are the apostles trustworthy? Is the Word of God an accurate representation of who the living God is and what He has come to do? Is that recorded in the Scriptures? And if it is, do you believe it? You see, this, this statement, do we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, Entire groups of theologians have come to that statement and they whittled it down to mean something really of no significance at all. But what John is really saying is, do you agree with us about who Jesus says that He is? Do you take our apostolic witness, our testimony, as being true and right? And do you confess that He is Lord as He said He is? according to the word that he has inspired us to write. It's the same reason why the red letter Bible people, have you ever run into any of those? I believe that the words that Jesus said in red are 
the most important. You know, the red letters are pretty new in the publication of the Word of God. And fact check for you, he inspired all of it. It's all breathed out by the Spirit of God. And, and, and so, so we, we come to the New Testament and to the Old Testament, and we can say we believe that this is correct and without error. John has already told us to test the spirits. Try them. And he has encouraged us in trying the spirits. Don't do it by your own subjective reason. Bring every spirit of the age back to the Word of God and subject every one of them to what we have said. Because we're not speaking of our own authority. We are speaking under the authority of the Spirit of Almighty God. And that Spirit has not only given us the external Word, He's given us the internal yes and amen to the Word. Isn't that fantastic? I mean, that makes Sunday morning not a pride fest, but we should crawl in here going, glory to God in the highest. Without Him, we couldn't understand any of this. We wouldn't have it, and we wouldn't respond to it without His Word. You see, in the... First years, there were all sorts of apocryphal Gospels. And we'll find this. CNN and some of the History Channel and some of these you know, big production groups, they love when some archaeologists find some Gospel according to some knothead from the first century written on old scrolls. And, and now we can prove that there's more of the Bible than, what, what, than was, what was there in the first place. Like the early church didn't wrestle with who was really speaking for God and who wasn't. That's the entire point of what John is dealing with here. Not only our, our personal assurance, but also an outward test for anyone that comes to us. And if they deny any part of Christ's representation in the Gospel, then we can mark it down. They are not speaking with apostolic authority and we can put those things away. There's a real easy test for all of these so-called Gospels that come forward, whether it's thousands of years ago or tomorrow on the news. Do they accord and uh, correspond with the canon of Scripture? And the answer is always no. See, correct belief means that we accept and agree with the sum total of what God's apostles have said, what His messengers speak. We know no Christ apart from the Christ of the New Testament. We don't depend on visions. We don't go to Christ directly. We find Him in the pages of the Word of God. We find Him in the proclamation of the Word of God. We need to always be careful. Beloved, in every century, there is this spirit of the age that goes right back to Satan that wants us as individual humans to believe that we can stand over the Word of God. That we are wiser than God. That, that, that spirit that has found its place in most of academia today. That we would lord over the Word of God and we would criticize it. And, and, and we would, you know, there's a, a vast movement of people that look at the Word of God today on a moral footing and they say, the Bible is antiquated and its morality is outdated. It's not that it gives us too much morality. It's that its morality is outmoded and outdated. That is Satan alive and trying to speak into our lives. And we must come to the Word of God and submit to it wholeheartedly. And when we do, we have assurance that we belong to 
him. And so that leads us to the last and the final question. What is correct belief? If we accept the apostolic record as a test of true belief, if we accept the Bible as the answer to the question of what is correct belief, we are in the vast minority of people in the world today that call themselves Christians. Because you have the Roman Catholic Church today who would say that it's not only the Word of God, but it's also the Pope, the individual that's going to speak ex cathedra for God. Uh, we have all kinds of uh, different uh, cults around our nation today. We have mainstream evangelicalism that is constantly hammering away against the veracity of Scripture in a thousand different ways. And what you will see time and time again is evangelical theologians trying to reconcile the text to the culture when the real job of a theologian and a pastor is to reconcile the culture to the text. To call people to repentance. To say you've gone too far. Turn and believe. So being in this group that would say yes and amen to the apostolic record and to the reality that Jesus really is Lord is to wander off into a vast minority. But I'm thankful we're here. You see, we've looked at this letter and again, as I said earlier, if we look at it as this grand masterpiece, if, it, if it's, it's part of the Apostle John's artwork and his painting, then what we are looking at in these verses is the bright glowing spot of the face of Christ in, in verses 15, uh, 14 and 15. And what he is really saying, he said in his, in his gospel as well. We see here, verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Aren't you thankful that we say yes and amen to that? We have these wonderful apostles that have flung out across the page for our benefit the reality of who this person Christ is. That John comes and he says, I'm not guessing about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. I've seen Him with my own eyes. I watched His life. I walked with Him. I know who He is. And so not only my explanation of who Jesus is, but also my exposition of what that faith means stands the test of time. What a joy it is to know that. That the ground of our Faith is not some feeling that will ebb and flow throughout our life. The ground of our faith is the Word of God that endures forever and will never fail. What a joy that is this morning, beloved. That we don't have to cower in the face of the culture and go, oh, I hope they like me so they'll love Jesus. We can declare the Word of God with love knowing that those that God gives His Spirit to will say yes and amen when the Gospel is proclaimed. The ground of our faith is not our feelings. It is the apostolic truth of the Word of God. And so then again, what did they see? What did they expound? Two things primarily. And the, the Nicene Creed that was read earlier really deals with these things and it's constantly a point of contention all throughout history and is in our own day. One, they saw Him as a man. Verse 14 again, And we have seen and testify 
that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. They saw Him, they walked with Him, they, they sat beside Him, but they also, not only did they see Him as a man, they saw Him as God. John chapter 1, the introduction to His Gospel, verse 14, and the words are written in the lobby so that we can't miss them every Sunday. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What John was saying is we looked at His person and we remember the the enigma that was before us. We looked at Him and He was a man like every other man. He looked just like a carpenter, quite ordinary. And and yet at times He was surprising. There There was some kind of radiance about this ordinary man. There was this glory that kept shining through. He looked like the rest of us, and yet we began to understand in pretty short order, He's not one of us. He's not the same. That there's something absolutely different peering out at us all the time. He frightened us. This ordinary person frightened us. We trembled before Him because His glory was just pouring out. We realized that He was the Savior, is the Savior of the world, the Son of God. And we beheld not only that it was a man, but that he was God. We were there with him in that boat. And the the storm crept up on us out of nowhere, almost like it was planned. And we woke him and said, Master, wake up or we perish. And he rebuked the wind and the waves. He caused all of the natural forces of this earth to come under His control. We watched Him raise dead people to life. We we watched Him walk into cities and lay His hands on people and heal them of diseases that had never been healed before. He mastered the elements. He controlled everything. Life, death, and everything that is in existence is held in His sovereign hand this very moment. That's what we saw. We saw the man, but we also beheld the grace of his glory. He beheld that glory streaming out through all of his works. But we also saw what happened to him. And we remember that time when, when he said to us, Hey, come up with, us, uh, with me on this mountain. I want to show you my glory. And so we went to the top of the mountain and there his whole body was transfigured. It became shining and white, and there were two men that appeared. They were Elijah and Moses, and they talked, and and, and we heard a voice from heaven. We beheld that glory, and we heard this voice. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We saw not only the man, but we saw His glory. We saw Him buried. We despaired. Because we had seen all of these things and we record them in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We we attest to these things as being a reality that this is not only the Word become flesh, but this is the fullness of the glory of God in the second person of the Trinity. We saw Him die and bleed for our sins. And we saw Him put away. We saw Him buried and we despaired of life. But we saw this glorious reality. when He came and He spoke to us. 
He was raised from the grave to life again. He he had the power not only to lay his own life down and commit himself to the Lord, but to the Father. We also saw him take his life back up again. That is the Jesus that we believe in. And anyone who would denounce that Jesus is not confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. Anyone that would confess a Jesus that doesn't accord with the apostolic authority and the record is not preaching and teaching the real Jesus. They're preaching. How many times have you heard this in our generation? Well, my Jesus would never do that. All you need to give me is book, chapter, and verse that says he would never do something, and I'll agree with you. But if my Jesus would never do that only flows out of the the desire of your heart for Jesus not to do that thing, then, friend, I, I tell you this under the weight of love. Repent and believe in the Jesus that's actually found in the Word of God. Believe in the One who is really glorious. Who God really sent. And what the apostles are saying here to us in verse 14, we have seen Him and we have, we have expressed to you all throughout the Gospels the wonderments of His work and His transfiguration and His resurrection and all of these glorious things. We have given you the accurate representation. We have given you the glorious deposition. You know, depositions are those things that lawyers will back you into a corner to give a deposition. To answer a bunch of questions while it's either recorded on a video or it's typed out. And and why do they do that? Because they will come back later at trial and say, well, you said this. It's written down. This is what you attest to. And if you say something other than this, you are a liar and we are going to throw you out of court or you're probably going to lose your case. And what the Apostle John is saying here is, Beloved, we have given you a glorious deposition in all of the Gospels and in all of our pastoral letters. We are attesting to you what is really true about the Son of God. Now, do you confess? Do you say yes and amen to that reality? Or do you decide in your day and age to just, well, we want to be in a particular type of a Baptist church or we want to have this particular expression of a political ethic in our church or we want and drag in whatever earthly garbage you want to into the church of God and put that forward as what should be proclaimed. People have been doing that throughout the centuries. They've been, they've been warring against God and saying, you know what? We'll give lip service saying that we believe in the apostolic record, but we're going to do church, we're going to do life, we're going to do everything our own way. What an absolute blasphemy of what God has given us. Why do we come in week in and week out and and make the Word of God the center point of what we do? Because it is His grace to show us who His Son is through the writing of His apostles and prophets. That is why we come to His Word week in and week out. And you go, Jay, but I mean, come on. At the end of the day, these men saw Him face to face. So how can we really look at the Word of God with the same degree of joy and passion? And people are going to think we're fanatical if we take the Word of God that seriously. In every generation, the answer to that question for the church has been yes and amen. 
The world has always looked down its nose at those who would submit themselves utterly to the apostolic record. But God hasn't looked down his nose. God is the one raising up men and women to live lives that way. God is the one at work through the power of his spirit to cause us to confess this Jesus, the one found in the word of God, is the one that is the son of God and he is my savior. And if you think that they had the gift, friends, of seeing the transfiguration, of seeing the one who they said was full of grace and truth and his glory shine through all of that happened to him, all that he did, all that he taught, that's true. But the Apostle Peter tells us that we have something better than they did. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Do you see that again? The apostles were eyewitnesses. So if somebody... Let me tell you something. Let's just get done with this right now. Hold on. There are men in this town, this town today, that call themselves apostles. That is blatant blasphemy. Because they've never looked upon Jesus with their eyes. They've never actually received a message other than the apostles and prophets that should be proclaimed in authority to the church of God. Those men should lay down their ministry and get right with the Lord and submit to the true apostolic record and proclaim it in its fullness. Because we don't follow, beloved, we don't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, of His glory. For when He received honor and glory from the Father, and, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on that holy mountain. They, what Peter is saying is we are the ones who stood with Him on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw His glory. We heard the vo voice of God commending Him towards us. But we have something better now. He says, continuing, and we have, the, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts knowing that First of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Friends, it is absolute garbage when people say, well, I have a word from you, to you from God. And then they go on to say something extra-biblical. If someone says to me, I have a word for you from God, I say, good. Tell me the book, chapter, and verse I want to read along with you. This is not a small doctrine. This is not a small thing. And if, if we believe that, then we're small people. Because the reality is, men and women have given their lives. They've bled and died 
for the canon of Scripture, for the sufficiency of Scripture. And you know what we're willing to do? Negotiate that away because our friends might think less of us if we take God at His Word. The Word of God is the gift to the church that our blinded eyes may be opened, that we may behold who Christ actually is, not in our own strength, but by the indwelling power of the Spirit of God. And when we see Him, by the work of the Spirit in His Word, we can say, yes, amen, and hallelujah, we belong to Him. The sufficiency of Scripture is not a small thing. The Word of God endures forever. And here's the practical implication of this. Do you remember what Isaiah wrote? Isaiah chapter uh, 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Do you know what that means today, LifePoint? It means that when you get the cancer diagnosis and you're told that you only have a certain amount of time to live, the word of God yet endures. When your finances seem to implode for no, because of no decision you've made, but because the world is in chaos, the Word of God endures forever. When your children walk in abject rebellion to God and seemingly forget all that you have taught them, the Word of God and the goodness of God abide forever. When wars rage around the globe, the Word of God yet endures. When absolute theological heresy and lies that have been hashed out and spoken in centuries past and we should as humans have put away long ago creep back into the church the word of God endures forever when the church dwindles in attendance because the word of God is finally proclaimed the word of God endures forever when we are few and the word the world hates us and mocks us and ridicules us and seemingly in so many different ways try to tear at the fabric of our faith and our families the word of God endures forever and you know what the word of God does for us right now when the spirit of God is involved the word of God shows forth who Jesus really is and the rest of our lives can be taken from us and we can be honest about it and say that that is painful it's difficult to to, to, to go through life and experience the pain. But the reality that the Spirit has revealed to us that He is our Father and He has sent His Son into the world is enough to sustain us. That is sufficient. Here is the fact, and I'll be done. People want to make the sufficiency of Scripture an argument about whether or not we uh, agree on these social issues or some peripheral issue. The argument about the sufficiency of Scripture at its root is this question, is Jesus enough in every area of your life? And John asks you that question this morning. Do you confess, do you say to that question, yes and amen, He's enough for everything? that happens in my life. I hope it's so in your heart today. And if it is, it's not because you're a good person, I promise you. It is because the sovereign God of all heaven, of all creation, has shown you His grace. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we have all become unprofitable in our own understanding, in our own ability, in our own exposition. We... We tear at the fabric of what Your Word really teaches us when we do it in our own strength. But Father, we come today asking for the grace of the illuminating work of Your Spirit in our lives, afresh and anew. Father, that we would 
confess Christ as Lord. Father, we come today acknowledging the reality that there are many religious pressures that would have us confess our subjective spiritual experience above the good confession that Christ is Lord. But may, may you convict our hearts and help us to understand the greatest thing that we can ever yes and amen is that you graciously sent your Son to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. And that as we confess that you are Lord over our lives, not only in word but in action, Father, that we are being the witnesses that you've called us to be. Father, might we be a people who are continually aware, not that we have mastered the Word, not that we are fully conformed to the apostolic authority and weight of Your Word, but that we are sinners in need of grace to continue to grow. Father, would You help us to feast on Christ in Your Word every day of our lives? Would You help us to see Jesus in His fullness? Not that we would be sentimental saps about Christ, but that we would be men and women who stand on the authority of what You have spoken through those who suffered for the glory of Christ. And might we be men and women in our own generation willing to suffer for the things of God. That we wouldn't just merely be religious, but that we would be repentant. And that we would genuinely behold Your glory. And that we would glorify You for the reality that we have seen both the humanity and the divinity of Christ, both His truth and His glorious grace.